1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to talk about verses 3 through 8 in this lesson. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 here in just a second, but we're going to go over verses 3 through 8. We covered verses 1 through 2 in an earlier sermon, and then we attached Matthew 18, 15 through 20 to that last week. So we're going to continue going through 1 Corinthians 5. Hopefully we'll learn some things in this lesson. It is widely reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even condoned among the Gentiles. A man is living with his father's wife, and you are inflated with pride instead of filled with grief, so that he who has committed this act might be removed from among you. For though absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already decided about him who has done this thing, as though I were present. In the name of our Master Yeshua, when you are assembled, along with my spirit and with the power of our Master Yeshua, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Master. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch since you are unleavened. For the Messiah, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. May Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. We come back today to the account of the unrepentant man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the man who was living in an intimate relationship with his father's wife should not have been doing that. Leviticus 18 commands against that. The Corinthian congregation had done nothing about this man. They were puffed up with pride, either boasting in themselves, saying, I'm not the one in the sin, look at me, or they were boasting in how they thought they were handling the situation accurately when they weren't. Either way, their pride was error. They should have been filled with grief, as verse 2 says. And in doing so, in having that grief, remove the unrepentant man from their congregation. Last week, we saw the steps that should be taken in matters like these. But the Corinthians were not following the Messiah's instructions recorded for us in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. No one was concerned for the man and... No one was concerned for the congregation. They were doing the man a disservice by not confronting him in a spirit of gentleness, but by not confronting him about his unrepentant sin. And in not doing that and not confronting him about that, they were damaging the congregation. Before we get to verses 3 through 8, somebody asked me a question after my first lesson on this subject. It was Sister Dorothy. It was a great question. And she asked, why doesn't the text also deal with the man's father's wife? You know, the man here is living in an, in an unrepentant relationship, intimate relationship with his father's wife, so what about the father's wife? Why is she not reprimanded here along with the man? Why is the man being singled out as needing discipline? And my answer is that it's likely that the woman that was involved was not a member of the congregation. The congregation is not called to deal with unrepentant sinners outside of the fellowship in the same way that they're called to deal with unrepentant sinners inside of the fellowship. 
Now, I get this from verses 9 through 13. And that's a section that I'm going to teach on in detail next week, verses 9 through 13. Paul's point in that block of verses is that the congregation is called to pass judgment on those who are inside, not on those who are outside. A saint, for example, a believer, we have to associate with unrepentant sinners every day that we go to work, he or she goes to work out in the world for business or commerce. We associate in a commercial way, in a business way, with people that are unrepentant sinners every day. And you cannot excommunicate someone outside the congregation because they don't belong to the congregation. So there's no need for excommunication there. It's only those members inside the congregation, the members of Yahweh's assembly, that have to be disciplined by the congregation when they fall into living in unrepentant sin. So I don't think that the man's father's wife was inside the fellowship, else she would have been dealt with in the same manner that he was. But the man was a member of the congregation. And Paul, as an apostle of the Messiah, he gives a verdict on what should be done at this point because the matter had gotten out of hand. So we get back to our text in verse 3. Once again, verse 3 says, Paul writes, For though absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already decided about him who has done this thing as though I were present. In verse 3, Paul says he's not there in body, in Corinth, but he is there in spirit. See, Paul's written a letter to the congregation. He's not there physically like I'm here tonight talking to you guys. But Paul is there in spirit. And I think what Paul means is a couple of things. First, I think he means he's mindful of the matter. He's thought about the matter. He's judged the matter with his spiritual mind. And he's part of them in that he's a member of the body of the Messiah too. Let me go a little bit deeper. Some interpreters, including myself, take this verse to mean that direct apostles and prophets have the supernatural ability to see into situations. See, they could pray and meditate and Yahweh would actually give them a vision about what was going on in Corinth, let's say, even though Paul wasn't there physically. Now, that's not far-fetched biblically. Let me give you one example. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we have a prophet who was the prophet Elijah's successor. His name was Elisha. And Elisha had the ability to see something as though he was there even when he was not. In this case, in 2 Kings 5, his servant Gehazi was doing something in disobedience. And even though Elisha was not with Gehazi, he later told his servant, did not my heart go with you when you disobeyed, basically. And so I believe that Paul had the same ability, it's a supernatural ability, given to some men, not all of us, but given to some men, that you could see what was going on in a place without physically being there. And I think that's what Paul is talking about. I'm absent in body, but I'm present in spirit. I have seen what is taking place supernaturally because of the gift that Yahweh has given me. Now verse 4, we read that. It says, In the name of our Master Yeshua, when you are assembled, along with my spirit, once again, Paul is there in spirit, and with the power of our Master Yeshua, Let's read verse 5. Turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day 
of the master. Now, in verse 4, Paul pronounces what is to be done to this man. Paul speaks in the name of the master and by the power of the master. And he says this, the reason he says that is to anchor what he's about to pronounce as being from heaven instead of from men. And when I say from heaven, I mean heavenly authority instead of earthly authority. There were some people that were once asked a question about the baptism according to John. And the question they were asked is, is it from heaven or is it from men? Now that wasn't a question that was meant to imply that John's baptism floated down out of heaven, but that it had heavenly authority. From men means earthly authority. And what Paul is saying here is, I'm pronouncing this judgment by the power of the Messiah. Remember Matthew 18, 15 through 20, where two or three gather together in the Messiah's name to perform discipline, he's there with them in their midst. You have my power, my authority behind you. So here in this text, Paul is not giving his advice. He's not saying, well, maybe you should try this out and it might work. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, I can see the matter in the Spirit and I have heavenly authority from the Messiah and I'm ruling properly about what should be done. So let's do this now. Let's read verses 3 through 5 together and I'll make a few comments on this. Verse 3, For though absent in body but present in spirit, I have already decided about him, the him is the unrepentant man, who has done this thing as though I were present, in the name of our Master Yeshua, that's by heavenly authority, when you are assembled along with my spirit, Paul in spirit, and with the power of our Master Yeshua, once again, heavenly authority, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Master. The verdict is, turn that one over to Satan. That sounds drastic. But I want you to notice the goal in the apostle's mind. The reason that Paul says you are to turn this unrepentant man over to Satan is for the salvation of his spirit on the day of judgment. You turn him over to the adversary in hopes that his spirit will eventually be saved. The turning over to Satan is to destroy the flesh of the man in order to get his attention and hopefully cause repentance to grow in his heart. Paul is not throwing the man away and forgetting about him. He's asking the congregation to discipline the man in hopes that the man will come to his senses at a later time. That's the purpose. What does it mean to turn a person over to Satan? I think it means a couple of things. One is this. The man is going from the congregation to the unbelieving world. He's going from being an insider to being an outsider. Inside the congregation, we have things like this. We have singing to Yahweh. We read the Scriptures every week publicly. We pray for one another. We share words of exhortation and encouragement, sometimes rebuke with one another. We hear the law. We hear the gospel. This congregation and all congregations of Yahweh are a small piece of the kingdom upon the earth. So when you put a man or woman out of the congregation for discipline purposes, unrepentant sin, and you let them be to you as a heathen or a tax collector, like Yeshua says in Matthew 18, 
It is moving the man from the sphere of Yahweh to the sphere of the adversary. The congregation, the kingdom, Yahweh's things. The world is the total opposite of that. Out in the world, they don't have all the things we have in here. And I think that's what Paul is getting at. In addition to that, I think Paul is speaking of bodily harm that would come upon the man due to his sin. Notice Paul says that to turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The point is that in leaving this unrepentant man to his sin, because he refuses to repent of it, so we're going to leave him to loving his sin, that's going to cause some kind of damage to that man physically. I'm speaking of physical sickness and illness. Some kind of illness would come upon that man because he refused to repent of his wickedness. That's what Paul was hoping. Maybe by the destruction of his flesh, he'll come to his senses and his spirit will be saved in the day of the Master. Now, I've experienced something like this before. And if you're a believer and you've ever gotten involved in something, transgression, that you should not be, this will happen. True believer. When a believer allows sin to take hold of his or her life and in essence turns their back upon Yahweh, during that time it will have a physical effect upon the body of the believer. Because the believer is involving his or herself into something that is not within the sphere of the kingdom of Yahweh. Now what we should say to that, if that happens to us, if we veer off into sin and there's a physical illness, I'm speaking literally now, that comes upon our body, and it wakes us up and we think, what if this that has come upon me is due to my unrepentance? And then we repent of that? We should sing glory, hallelujah to the King. Because Yahweh disciplines those that He loves. Have you ever seen rank sinners like unrepentant people in the world and it's like they can do anything that their flesh wants and nothing bad ever happens to them the psalms talks about this you know and you can do something small what you might consider small a small transgression and it's like you know stomach ache headache problems that's Yahweh's discipline on his children that's the difference between a Jacob and an Esau I believe that that's how Yahweh loved Jacob, by disciplining Jacob. I think the way that Yahweh hated Esau, or if you want to say loved Esau less than Jacob, is because he never received any discipline. He just let him roam free. Whether you see delivering over to Satan as meaning actual physical bodily harm to the flesh or not, the purpose of discipline is still present. Paul is saying that the unrepentant man needs to go through a rough process in hopes that he comes to his senses and in the end, maybe he'll have salvation. Maybe he'll have eternal life. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here's another passage where Paul talks about this. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 18 through 20. Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy, my child, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you 
so that by them you may strongly engage in battle, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have suffered the shipwreck of their faith. We think about a shipwreck, disaster, calamity. A person had faith, but some of these people had suffered shipwreck of their faith. Then Paul names them. Verse 20 says, Hymenaeus and Alexander are among them, and I have delivered them to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So Hymenaeus and Alexander had been guilty of blasphemy against Yahweh. And Paul said they'd gotten to a point, I had to turn them over to Satan. And I believe what Paul is talking about, the same thing as in 1 Corinthians 5, for the destruction of the flesh in hopes that they'll learn from this physical harm that I've turned them over to, they'll learn not to blaspheme. I believe Paul had the the power to do such a thing. So I think that physical fleshly turmoil can make a man or woman wise up to the matters of the spirit realm. Let's say you're the man in Corinth who is unrepentant. And you were excommunicated from the congregation and it really didn't bother you at first. You thought, well, I'm enjoying my sin I'm going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. And then all of a sudden you come down with a serious disease or an illness. Well, if it was me, I would automatically think that I need to repent and get in line with the Word of Yahweh. I would. And that's what Paul is hoping for. Once again, Paul is not throwing the man away and forgetting about him. The reason he's putting him out for the destruction of the flesh is that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Master. I think that's Paul's point. It's similar, if you could think about this, and I don't want to veer off on a rabbit trail too much, but I've taught before in detail on the Master's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He says that some people have partaken of the Master's Supper in an unworthy manner, and he tells us how they did it. And turned it in kind of to a party, drunkenness, gluttony, something like that. And Paul says, for this reason, some of you are sick, and some have even fallen asleep. And that's a biblical term for they have died. So Paul links physical sickness up in this case with uh, neglecting the matters of the Spirit. Let me say this. That does not mean that every time somebody gets sick that it's a result of an unrepentant sin. Please nobody quote me in saying that. All I'm saying is that Yahweh, one of the ways He disciplines His children is that they can be involved in unrepentant sin and Yahweh can bring turmoil upon them in order to bring them back. Destruction of the flesh, spirit might be saved. Let's finish this out with verses 6 through 8. Let's look at these remaining verses. We read, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch since you're unleavened. For the Messiah, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old yeast or with the yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, oftentimes, in Messianic or Torah-observant congregations, we're so focused on proving that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread should still be observed today that we miss the reason that Paul adds this admonition at this place in his letter. Now, I believe that these verses do show that the New Covenant congregation still observed the feast after Yeshua ascended into heaven. But why does Paul bring up the Passover here? Why does he make mention of it at this point? 
Well, first off, I believe that Paul's letter to the congregation at Corinth arrived around the Passover season. If you read the end of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 5 through 8, you will see that Paul anticipates going to Corinth at that congregation the upcoming winter season, but he says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Until Pentecost implies that Pentecost is the next feast on the yearly schedule. Now you couple that with him mentioning the Passover in 1 Corinthians 5, and it seems to me that he wrote the letter to the Corinthians, and it arrived during Passover season when he was in Ephesus waiting until Pentecost. When the Passover season was there, everybody would be thinking about, and they would have fresh on their mind, Exodus 11, 12, and 13. It's not that we can't think of those chapters all year long, but you know as well as I, when Passover gets here, that's fresh on our mind. We're thinking about the Exodus from Egypt. That's why we do the Passover, to remind us when the children of Israel were brought out of bondage from the land of of Egypt into freedom. I think Paul uses what is on their minds in that season to make his point. And that's why Paul says, a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough. And then he says, clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch, since you are unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. What's his point? The point is, is that to keep the unrepentant sinner inside of the congregation would work just like yeast does to a batch of dough. That's why Paul uses the analogy here. So if the congregation was, let's say, 50 people, the one unrepentant man would have an effect upon the whole congregation in the same way that the yeast would the dough. And it only takes how much yeast? A little bit of yeast. Those who bake bread know that it does not take much yeast to leaven a batch of dough. Likewise, it does not take but one unrepentant sinner to permeate through the assembly or the congregation. For me, I've learned this from experience. I have seen matters pop up in congregations and the issue not be dealt with properly. I have dealt with issues improperly myself and have had to ask Yahweh to forgive me, and it was because of a neglect to obey Yeshua's instructions in Matthew 18. Now, I can guarantee you that any time we don't obey Yeshua's instructions, how to handle unrepentant sin, in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, we're asking for trouble. Anytime we think, well, I know that's what it says, I've read Matthew 18, but I'm going to just kind of ignore it, kind of go my own way, kind of do my own thing, You're asking for trouble, you know. And that's like that with any of Yahweh's law. If we know a a law of Yahweh and then we kind of just turn our eye from it or turn our ear from it and we kind of go our own way and do our own thing, we're asking for trouble. We are. Once you place the yeast into the batch of dough, I'm speaking literally now, you cannot take it back out of that batch of dough. So what do you do? Paul tells us. Clean out the old yeast. Get rid of it so that you may be a new batch. When he says clean out the old yeast, it's a metaphor for put that man outside of the assembly. That's what Paul is saying. Paul pulls from Exodus 12 where the Israelites were told to remove the leavening from their homes during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he takes that and he makes an analogy of that 
of removing the unrepentant sin from our midst, else it will corrupt the entire batch of dough, i.e. the congregation. That's why Paul brings up the point. Yes, it proves that they're observing Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but there's a reason Paul adds it in right here. It makes a good analogy to go along with Paul's point on what he's been shown from the Spirit. Now, as saints, we have to go through this process personally every day that we live. We should go through it every day that we live. We are called to evaluate our actions each day that we live, constantly removing sin from our lives, being sorrowful for sin, repenting of sin, and then seeking to maintain purity in our own lives personally so that when we gather together here on Sabbaths, New Moons, and Feasts, we have one unleavened batch of dough to worship the Father. And the reason Paul mentions, you ever wonder, most people don't. Why does Paul say for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed? Why does he bring that up here? The reason that Paul brings this up is once again, he's going from the literal to the spiritual. Christ our Passover, the Messiah our Passover, he's already been sacrificed. So why then are you not removing the leavening? Do you see that? When the Passover lamb, the physical Passover lamb was sacrificed, the leaven was then removed. So Paul is saying the spiritual lamb, the Messiah, he's been sacrificed. Why are you still allowing this unrepentant sin to take place in the congregation? If you're going to keep that part of the feast, Christ, let's keep the next part. Let's remove the leaven out from the congregation. That's Paul's point, from the literal to the spiritual. He's not abolishing the natural feast. He's simply using the natural to teach the spiritual. So Paul ends by saying, therefore, or upon this basis, let's observe the feast, there in verse 8. But he's not merely referring to the natural feast when he says, let's observe the feast. That's part of it, but that's not where it stops. He's making a spiritual analogy based on the natural festival. Catch this. Keeping the natural feast of unleavened bread means nothing if the congregation is not concerned with unrepentant sin. I hope you catch that. If there's no concern spiritually for sin and you're all in a tizzy about getting the natural leaven out of your house, then your feast has really became your feast and not Yahweh's feast. Amen? Do you see what I'm saying? It's kind of like in Isaiah 1 where he says, I'm tired of all these things. I'm tired of the sacrifices. I'm tired of of the incense and the new moons and all this. And it wasn't that Yahweh did not love his appointed times. It was because what was going on behind the scenes? Well, they were ignoring the widows and the orphans. They were taking bribes. They were having unjust weights and measures. But yet they were showing up at the feast, ready to celebrate the feast, with blood on their hands. And Yahweh says, look, if you're not concerned with with sin, then how should I receive your feast keeping when you come before me? And I think that's what Paul is saying. You can keep the natural feast, but if you're not concerned with sin, if you're living a life of sin, it doesn't matter. Paul is saying that to keep the spirit of the festival, you've got to remove the old yeast, which is the unrepentant sinner, and you've got to remove the yeast of malice and evil, that is, your attitude of pride. Remember, your boasting is not good. Verse 6, you have been puffed up in pride rather than mourn that he who hath done this deed might be removed from among you. The unleavened bread, that's the natural bread, of sincerity and truth, that's the spiritual, 
is the proper way to keep the feast. You've got to have both the natural and the spiritual. Neither one cancels out the other. So in closing, the congregation was celebrating the natural feast wrongly, and this is why. It was because the spiritual matter of sin had not been dealt with. There was sin in the camp, unrepentant sin in the camp. Very important. To go through the outward motions of the feast and not realize the deeper spiritual significance is not really observing the feast. The natural aspects of the feast should point you to the deeper spiritual reality of the Messiah or Passover and thus the need to remove the old leaven of sin from our own lives through repentance. And if need be, removing an unrepentant sinner outside into the realm of of the adversary. This today is the word of the Master through our beloved brother, the Apostle Paul. And I pray that our understanding of this text will lead us to obey the principles that are taught therein. May we daily mortify the deeds of of our flesh and seek to live unleavened lives unto our Heavenly Father. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. We'll finish out this teaching next week. So if you want to read ahead, you can study 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Yahweh, I know that apart from your Spirit, being attached to the words that I spoke, it will do no good. So I pray right now that you would touch the hearts and the minds of everyone in here. You would enlighten the the eyes of our understanding. And let us comprehend that which we've read. And then let us make application. I'm thankful for wisdom. I'm thankful for understanding. I always pray for more of it. I pray these things through your Son.